Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of August 30th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, you may have guessed, to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We have been here now for some time, and we are going to be looking this morning, in fact, the next two weeks, really at one verse. And I don't normally just look at one verse, but we have been building up to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, for several weeks now. And we're going to be looking at this verse in particular over the next couple of weeks because there is so much going on in this verse. Kevin DeYoung, a uh, pastor and preacher that I like listening to from time to time, has mentioned this verse as being kind of a, a New Testament version of a picture or a snapshot, if you will. I was talking to somebody this week uh, younger than me, uh, someone who doesn't remember that cameras used to have things called film. How many of y'all remember film? in cameras you know that was back when you had to really you couldn't just take pictures as much as you wanted to you had to kind of you had 24 pictures or maybe 12 if you were really splurging you had a 36 roll of film y'all remember those and you couldn't just take 25 30 pictures and go cool boom because you had to i only got 36 of these i've only got 24 i've got to make them count and even then you didn't know if it turned out for sometimes a week or so uh, I remember I had a chance to spend a summer in Australia back in 1989. And, uh, you know, I had all these rolls of film I took. And I had no idea if a picture I'd taken in June was going to come out. So I got back home in the States and had developed sometime in August. I went two months. Nowadays, we take a picture, yeah, delete. And we take as many as we want to. Well, Kevin DeYoung talks about this verse in some ways as a snapshot, a picture. It's a summary of what was going on in the early days of the church. And when I talk about the church, I'm not even talking about an organization. I'm not talking about something that had a constitution and bylaws that was recognized as an organization legally. I'm talking about the people of God coming together and fellowshipping and doing the things that we, talk, that we see here in Acts chapter 2. The church, the people of God, the called out ones, as we saw last week. So chapter 2, verse 42, is a picture, it's a summary of what was going on and what the church looked like from its very founding moments. So I'm going to begin uh, with, actually, I'm going to go all the way back to verse 37, and we're going to read all the way through verse 42 and 43. When they heard this, that's Peter's sermon, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, would you teach us this morning, and through the power of your Spirit, give us a picture of not only what the early church looked like, but what your church should be today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've looked through these first 
these, these last five verses, 37, 38 through 41, in detail over the last several weeks. And as we get up to chapter 2, verse 42, we're going to see a couple things, I think, in this snapshot, if you will, of, of the early church that are going to be important for us to understand, even as we are in the year 2020, as we're in, enduring a lot of things. As we look through this year and go, man, what's going, to, what's going to happen next? It probably isn't good. It's kind of what it feels like each and every day. You almost wake up and you go, Okay, what's going to happen today? Let's it, be honest, that's what this year has felt like for a lot of us, hasn't it? Well, here is uh, what's going on here in Acts chapter 2. And understand that I know this year has been challenging for those of us who have lived through it. But uh, the reality is, life for the early believers in Jerusalem was not a picnic either. They were living under a regime in the Roman Empire that was repressive, that was oppressive in any sense of the word. They had no freedoms. Each and every day they have to wonder where their food's coming from. They have no idea if a Roman soldier might, walk, might simply walk up to them on a given day and force them to stop whatever it is they're doing, stop them from working, stop them from making a living, and make them follow him and do what he wants them to do. They have no idea if a tax collector, like a Matthew, who wrote the first gospel that we have here, might show up and say, you owe us this much money. They lived in a, a world, a society, where things were uncertain from day to day, and for even... Those of us who have lived through 2020, we still have a fair amount of security and certainty in many ways. They didn't possess any of these things. And so to this, Peter comes and preaches, and they respond to the Word of God through Peter. And here is their, here is their lifestyle moving forward. They devoted themselves continually, first of all, to the apostles' teaching. Now that word devoted, we... We use that word from time to time. We use that word, say, I'm devoted to this, I'm devoted to her, I'm devoted to him, I'm devoted to this, I'm devoted to that. What does it mean to be devoted to something? Well, as Acts chapter 2 understands it, this is a word that literally has two things part of it. It has a word that means towards something, and it has a, a, another word that means to be strong towards something continually. So the idea of chapter 2, verse 42 is this. They were steadfastly, they were continually, they were day in and day out, devoting themselves, committing themselves, acting in such a way that they were adhered to or glued to something. That's kind of the idea. It is, it is a consistent day in, day out, ongoing commitment. It literally has this idea of adhering constantly, to be steadfast, to continue. So when they, are con when they are continually devoting themselves, it is the pattern of their life from that day forward to do something every day, to, to have it be the governing thing. So let me ask you this. Let's think about it this way. Not that it's an exact match, but for those of you who are married, when you took vows, you may not have used the word devoted, but you, in a sense, you devoted yourself to another person, right? Is that fair enough? That when you became married, husbands, you devoted yourself to your wives, wives, you devoted yourself to your husbands. And that means that in part, from now on, everything you do, everything you possess, everything you say, your life is now shaped by your devotion to that person. So your decision-making from your job to how you spend your money to how you spend your time it's all shaped by, first and foremost, your devotion to that other person. Well, 
If we are devoted to something, that's what's going to happen. It doesn't mean that's the only thing you're doing. It doesn't mean that every, if you're devoted to a person, like in a marriage, it doesn't mean that every moment of every, of every day, it doesn't mean every breath is spent in their presence, but it does mean that everything you do has them in mind. That's what it means to be devoted. And it's to doing it on a daily, steadfast, not-to-be-deterred type of a way. So they were devoted. And so these people who had been convicted, these people who had found themselves on the wrong side of history, these people who had realized by the preaching of the Word through Peter that they had, in fact, killed and murdered the very one they had been waiting for. And they, when they, upon realizing that, went, Oh, no, what do we do now? Peter says, Repent. So they repented. Okay, and now what does that look like? It means that the one they had rejected just a few weeks before, it means that the one that God had sent, that they had been waiting for, that they had murdered, it means that now the one they had rejected and turned their back on and laughed at and mocked and scorned is now the one they are devoted to. And that the one they had looked, uh, uh, the one they had mocked is now the one that they will adore and that will shape the rest of their lives. So that's where we begin. So a snapshot of the early church lets us see a people who have moved from doing their own thing and rejecting the one that God had sent, now to having their lives shaped by and devoted to that same one. All right? So now, we understand they're going to be devoted to Christ, but what does that look like? How do they express that devotion to Christ. They're going to do it in a number of different ways. And first of all this, they devote themselves, it says, to the apostles' teaching. Now we understand that the early church did not have a sanctuary like ours. They didn't have a building like ours, or like what's pretty common today, at least here in the United States, as far as churches. They didn't have a building that was built that was dedicated to the use of Christian worship. For most of them in those early days, we understand that they really continued to go to the Jewish temple or the synagogues to worship and to teach. Now they were, in that context, talking about Christ and the one that, he had, the one that God had sent as opposed to focusing upon uh, the, the rejection of Christ, but they were still worshiping, in a sense, by going to the synagogue or the temple, generally on a daily basis. It, sh- it shaped everything else in their lives. Uh, on a Sunday morning, for example, if you're living in first century Israel, in Jerusalem, or you're a believer a few years later in the cities of Antioch or Ephesus or even Rome. You know, Rome does not have laws that make Sunday a day off. So if you are a believer in those days and age, you get up early and first thing in the morning, you're probably going to the temple, you're going to the synagogue, you're worshiping, you're doing some Bible study. Well, I don't really have Bibles yet, but you're doing scriptures, you're hearing teaching, and you're going from there to spend the rest of your day at work. And you probably do that on a pretty regular basis. So if we wanted to be kind of like that, we could just do this, couldn't we? We could just have, we could open up the sanctuary at 6 o'clock on Monday morning. And y'all come in and we'll worship, we'll have some songs, we'll do some teaching, and at 7 o'clock, 7.30, y'all go to work. And we'll do it on, we'll do it, we'll give you a day break, we'll do it on Wednesday too. And then maybe on Thursday and Friday, and we'll give you Saturday off. We'll come back on Sunday. How's that sound? <laughs> I didn't hear an amen on that one. They are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the first thing listed here is this idea of teaching. Why is this such a big deal? Well, let's think about this for a second. Um, 
this one that they had killed just a few weeks before this, the one they had been waiting for, they want to know, well, what did he say? If you had found out that somebody you had been responsible for killing was actually now alive, you'd probably be a little curious about him, wouldn't you? Well, that's what these folks are saying. They saw this guy. They saw him on the cross. They had been part of the thing that had killed him. They had seen all this. These are people who were there five weeks before this, six weeks before this. They had seen, they were first-hand witnesses to all this. And now he's alive. So they're curious. What did he say? So when they, what did he do? So when they de- devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, what they're hearing is the apostles, like Peter say, this is what he said and did over the last three years that we were with him. Remember, we've talked about this before, especially when we were looking in the Gospel of Mark before Acts. Uh, they saw Jesus initially as a rabbi, and the apostles, as we call them, were disciples. That is, they were students. Disciple is a word for student. That's all it is. So we really could be calling them the 12 students, or the 12 followers. It's the same thing. Now, in that day and age, a rabbi and apostle, here's the relationship. Whatever the rabbi says, whatever the teacher says, the disciples are responsible for memorizing. They're responsible to to know every detail and every syllable so that they can not just tell somebody their interpretation of what the rabbi said. They're responsible to tell and to quote the rabbi. So when when, when Jesus sent the disciples out on those first mission trips, their, their goal was to say, these are the words of Jesus, and to essentially quote him, to repeat word for word, verbatim, the things that Jesus had said. That's what a disciple was supposed to do, not just Jesus' disciples. That's what any disciple would do for any rabbi. So when they're listening to the apostles teaching here in Acts chapter 2, what they're hearing are Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, all these guys, they're hearing them say, this is what, after three years we spent with Jesus, these are the things we heard him say, and now they are beginning to quote the things that Jesus said. So all the things that we have in the Gospels, and probably more, there's probably more stories that we don't have, they are now telling the things that Jesus told them to other people. And not only doing that, they're telling him, this is what he did, this is what he said, this is how he behaved. Because this guy who came back to life from the dead, who they saw die and has now been alive, they want to know what that guy said. They're now devoted to him, and now they're going, they want to see and hear everything that was said by Jesus. <clears throat> you know, nowadays we have uh, this thing called the Internet, and it's a source of great information that, I, I got to admit, I'm, I'm a fan of things like Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even gotten into the Marvel movies over the last several years. And every time a new movie is coming out, especially things like Star Wars, there's whole websites dedicated to giving out any bit of new information. What's going to be the title of the movie? What's going to be the plot of the movie? Who are the actors? What's behind the scenes? And people will scour these websites and they'll read them daily because they want to find out what's in the mind of a George Lucas who came up with Star Wars. What's in the what's what's going to happen? They want all the information they can get. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. They want every bit of information they can find about this guy who came back to life, who was once dead. 
So why is teaching first? Well, one, by teaching, they're talking about what he did, what he said, and they are massively, devotedly interested in everything that he had to say. Because these teachings are true. They're essential. If I'm going to follow and be his disciple, I have to know what it is he said. Now, you and I, we don't have access to firsthand eyewitness accounts, at least verbally. But I understand this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they are, in fact, written down firsthand accounts. So you and I can't hear Peter and James and John. We may not be able to hear their voice say, this is what we heard him say, but we can read the Gospels and from their writing understand what Jesus said and taught and did. So this is what's going on. That's part of it. Two, not only were the disciples teaching or the apostles teaching what Jesus had said and done the last three years, they are using what we call the Old Testament. They're using Scripture. If you remember, one of the things that Jesus did, especially we have record of the last few, uh, the last days, especially after his resurrection, is he was taking the Scriptures, he was taking the Old Testament, and he was showing them how the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, pointed to him. Understand that the early days of the church, in fact, for the first century, and even beyond that, the, the scriptures, the text, if you will, that the early church used to evangelize the Roman world was not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and 1 Corinthians, and James, and Titus, and Philemon. Those books didn't exist yet. So you know what scripture the early church was using to make the gospel known to the world? The Old Testament. For those today who would say the Old Testament is irrelevant, for those today who would say that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, for those today who would say the gospel is not in the Old Testament, we don't really have to worry about teaching that, they're ignoring what the disciples did. They're ignoring what Jesus did. The scriptures that were used in the early church, the scriptures that were used on Pentecost to begin the church were things from Psalms and, some, and, some, and scriptures from Joel and scriptures from Isaiah. All throughout the New Testament, whether it's Paul later on in his letters or Jesus in the Gospels, they're using what you and I call the Old Testament to share the Gospel. The Old Testament is evangelistic. The Old Testament points to Christ, and you cannot separate the Old and the New Testaments. They're crucial. This is why we spend uh, perhaps almost as much time, if you take all our programming all together, Sunday nights, uh, Sunday nights, Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, we spend as much time in the Old as we do the New, because you can't separate the two. They're crucial. They used the Old Testament. Now, here's one thing that's going on, too. Remember, all these people they're preaching to, they missed the Messiah the first time. They didn't recognize him. And why did they not recognize the Messiah? Well, because they did not know. They may have been able to quote, but they didn't know the meaning of their scriptures. So now they're all going, well, wait a minute. We just missed Jesus the first time. We didn't realize who he was because we realized we didn't really know our scriptures the way we thought we did. We don't want to make that mistake again. <laughs> We don't want to miss him again. Y'all ever been driving somewhere, and I know this very rarely happens, but the GPS makes a mistake and sends you to the wrong road? You ever, you ever had that? 
you can't find the address thing. Um, and, oh, that was the exit. Oh, man. So what do you do when you miss the exit? Well, you try to find the next one. You turn around. You come back this way. You, you circle back around. Now, what happens? You've seen it. Now you missed it the first time. What happens if you go back? How many of y'all missed it the second time? Okay, I guess I see some hands here. Oh, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> now, if you miss it the first time, maybe it's the GPS's fault, or maybe it's the navigator in your front seat's fault. If you miss it the second time, whose fault is it? Yeah, it's <laughs> and you might get mad at yourself for missing it the first time. If you miss it the second time, now you're banging on the steering wheel, aren't you? These folks did not want to miss it a second time. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So not only would they know everything Jesus had said and done, so they could in fact replicate it and follow it and do everything he said, they also wanted to know the scriptures as they applied to Jesus so they wouldn't miss what God's going to do the next time. One reason we look at the scriptures even this morning is this. We want to know what God has done. We want to know what God has said. We want to be able to replicate. We want to be able to imitate all that Jesus said and done, has done. But we also, in seeing the scriptures, don't want to miss what God does next time. We don't want to miss what God says tomorrow. So if I begin to recognize the patterns of God, if I begin to recognize the things that God does and that He has already done, if I see His patterns in Scripture, I may recognize them tomorrow when I see them. So, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. For the people of Jesus' day, for the people of Peter's day, they're no doubt hoping. Remember, their, their existence is difficult. They're no doubt hoping, and understandably so, in things like a political or military solution to get Rome out. That's, that's what they thought the Messiah was going to be. They were hoping for someone who would come in and kick out the Romans. They were hoping for someone who would provide food, someone who would provide them some security. In modern parlance, they're looking for insurance and security and someone who will make sure that they don't have to worry about anything. That's, hey, listen, we're not the first ones to want those things in history. They wanted them too. But what Jesus said was this. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. My methods are not of this world. He drew their attention beyond this world to an eternal kingdom. In other words, he said one thing he told them was this. Don't trade the temporary, or so don't trade the eternal for something temporary. Don't get caught up in the things that will not last and miss the things that will, in fact, last for all eternity. This is why, for us, this is an example of why God's truth is so essential. Why we today must be devoted to the teaching of God's Word. Because we have to be reminded, you and I, that we don't want to trade the eternal for the temporary. We don't want to trade the spiritual for the, the carnal. We want to have our lives shaped by the truth of God's Word. Understand this. Satan, our enemy, would rob us of the joy and of the strength that comes from being devoted to God's Word. Here's one aspect of devotion I haven't talked about yet. Yes, it's constant. Yes, it's steadfast. Yes, it is disciplined. Yes, it is each and every day. But devotion also 
has as an aspect of it an adoration and a joy and a love. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. How can the joy of the Lord be our strength? Because if I am committed to something, but I hate doing it each and every day, what are the odds I'm going to keep on doing it? Probably not very good. But if I have a joy in the Lord, if I am shaped by my desire for Him, my devotion to Him, that will give me the strength to each and every day hang in there even when I don't understand or when I don't see or when it's hard or all those things because I trust and I'm devoted to Him. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And these folks, as they are devoting themselves to the Lord, devoting themselves to Christ, devoting themselves to the teachings of Christ, are finding in that a joy, a strengthening that allows them to be steadfast day in and day out, even when it's difficult. The joy of the Lord, the devotion to His teaching can protect us. It also keeps us straight, because here's, here's, here's something that Satan does. Satan is a master liar. He is the father of lies. So what Satan is a master of doing is taking even the truths of Christ's teachings, even the truth of God's Word, and just getting us to adjust a little bit to the left or to the right. So that maybe we don't see it for a little while, but eventually we find ourselves down the road departing from the truth of Christ's Word. And now we're no longer following Him, but we're following something entirely different, even if we had the best of intentions. So devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching is a way to keep us in the footsteps of Christ and not trailblazing our own footsteps. It is not a badge of honor in the kingdom of God to be blazing your own trail. We are, in fact, supposed to always be in the footsteps behind Christ. Otherwise, we're not following him. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Look at what else they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Now, oh, this sounds better. I like this. I like fellowship. I like hanging out with my friends. I I like laughing. I like good food. I like this idea of fellowship. And that's cool, but that's not what this word means. (laughs) All right? It's a Greek word called koinonia. And it's a word that has this idea of sharing. And we're going to see that a little bit later on in this passage of Scripture, in, the, in, in this chapter. But here's what it has this idea. It has the idea of, of, of association, of community, if you will, of joint participation, of sharing with one another what I have and what you have. Now, I'm not talking about simply financial stuff, even though that is implied. In fact, by the way, Uh, We don't always see this, but throughout the New Testament, when you'll see indications that Christians are sharing their resources with one another, or they're taking up an offering, so the churches in Ephesus, or the churches churches that Paul had founded in Asia Minor are taking up an offering at some point in the book of Acts to send back to the Christians in Jerusalem because they're in desperate need. And that finances, that that, those, those sharing of resources is the same word. So there is a financial aspect to it. There's a material aspect to it, but it's not only that. The idea of fellowship of the New Testament is this idea that you and I share our lives together. That what I have, I give to you, whether it's my time, whether it's my gifts, whether it's my affection, whether it is my thoughts, whether it is my emotion 
and you share that with me. What I have, what God has given me, I share with you. We take part in it together. So I don't have the option of saying, well, God gave me this, you can't have any. Now, for those of you who looked at our, those of you who participated in our Wednesday night study in Jonah throughout the summer, you may recognize this little problem. Jonah, as, a, as an Israelite, in the period of the kings, was aware that God had given his grace and blessing and calling upon the nation of Israel. And the last thing he wanted when God sent him to Nineveh was that God might share with Nineveh some of the grace he had given to Israel. Jonah wanted it all for himself. He wanted it all for his people. And God slapped him upside the head hard for it. It's the same thing today. You and I, as those who have received, if we have followed Christ, we have received God's grace. We have received God's loving kindness. We have received His compassion. And guess what? We are to be sharing in equal measures. His grace, His compassion, His truth, His holiness, His resources, our time, our love, all those things. And that's what it means to be in fellowship, to take our lives and to share them, to contribute, to be generous with everything God's given us as he had to, to those around us. Let me share with you a few scriptures that talk about this in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, describes this same concept. He uses the same word, koinonia, to talk about how God, through Christ, shared the blood of Jesus and his flesh with us. In other words, what Jesus Christ did on the cross, shedding his blood to cover sins, resurrecting, God shared what Jesus did with you. So even though you didn't die on a cross, and even though you didn't resurrect, God took what Jesus accomplished and shared it with you. All right? You didn't deserve it. He just gave it to you. Isn't that cool? Aren't you glad, aren't you glad God did that? It's the same word. 2 Corinthians 10.14 says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with, un, with, with lawlessness? Now, different context. Same word. In other words, two people cannot be intimately bound with one another if they do not jointly also share Christ. Because he's essentially describing marriage as a sharing of life. And if one is opposed to Christ and one has accepted Christ, they can't do that. They need to choose one or the other. So, but it's the same word. It's, so you see this idea of koinonia being this intimate life sharing. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 talks about how Paul says, I want to know him, that is Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul just said, I want to koinonia Jesus' sufferings. I want to share them. I want him to share them with me. Ooh, that's a, that's a harder one there, isn't it? 1 John 1, 3. John is, the Apostle John is writing, he says, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you that you too may have fellowship that you may have shared with us and our fellowship is with the father and with his son john says i want you to know the truth of who jesus is so that just as i am sharing a relationship a fellowship with god the father and god the son so that you and i may share that life with him together so what the new testament's repeatedly doing is not just in the financial sense but saying that christians share a life together that we cannot share with the world or when I say that, I mean we can't live with the world in that sense. We can share it with them in the sense we talk to them about it. We let them know about it. We invite them into it. But we cannot 
as believers have an intimate relationship with an unbeliever in the same way we have a relationship with Christ. And that you and I as fellow believers, whether we're parts of London First Baptist or some other church, you and I have a bond with other believers that this world cannot replicate. That's one of the things that should mark us as believers is that there is an intimacy in our walk with God. When we, when we take the Lord's Supper, when we do baptism, we're not only talking about the fellowship or the joining we have with, with Christ, but we're also proclaiming the fellowship of the joining we have with one another. That's what makes the church so unique and so special, this koinonia. So he says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to this life of sharing, if you will. Not just resources or money or material possessions, but soul, heart, mind, time. Now, as a church here in 2020, in London, Arkansas, the River Valley, how do we devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship? I want to share with you a couple things. For the last few months, the, the folks that make up our various leadership teams, the finance team, the building and grounds team, the personnel team, the uh, missions team, have been meeting. And we've been looking at the vision that God has for us as a church. And we've been talking through June and July and August about these things, about what is it that God would have us to do as a church and to be as a church moving forward. Now, the world we're living in may look a little different moving forward. I, I don't know, as much as we would like to say we want to go back to a pre-COVID world, I don't know that we're going to ever truly get past there. The, the changes to our culture, I think, are already in place. How do we do these things? Is, does, okay, well, large group events are hard now. I don't know if fall festival will be able to take place now. Does that mean we just stop? Well, the short answer is no. It just means that maybe how we do evangelism, how we do ministry may be a little different moving forward. Let me share with you a couple of things as we move forward into September and into the fall. So the apostles' teaching. We are going to be starting something and obviously we do teaching here on Sunday mornings, and even on Wednesday nights I do teaching, but we're going to do something on Sunday nights starting on September 13th. That's two weeks from tonight. Six o'clock, we're going to do something called CORE, CORE classes. And we're going to have four different Bible studies, four different groups. That means we'll be spread out in four different rooms. We're going to be using the fellowship hall, the youth area, the sanctuary, and the choir room, our four biggest rooms. And we're going to have a series of classes that are eight weeks in length. You've signed for eight weeks. And we have four different classes you can pick from. So I, I want to go to this one. I want to go to that one. And for eight weeks, you do that. And that'll be through the balance of through the early part of November. In January, we'll start four different classes. You'll have six or eight week classes there. And then they'll, those will end. And then we'll do four more after that. And we'll have different teachers and different topics. But the idea is these will be in-depth Bible study teaching things that help us grow and the core doctrines, the core teachings of the apostles' words. I want to invite you to think about that, to, to participate in that. So, for example, uh, I think in your online bulletin, the email bulletin you got on our website now, you'll see these. We have four starting in, in, in two weeks from now. One is on the Holy Spirit, called the Gift of the Spirit. One's going to be on the Sermon on the Mount, out of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. One's going to be called the, the Measure of a Man, Godly Qualities of what it means to be a disciple, by the way, not just for men. One's going to be on 
our worship and the words that we sing, and a Bible study using some of the hymns or the, or the words to songs that we sing as a way of doing Bible study. And those are, those are run for eight weeks. And then in January, we'll do four different ones. Or maybe we'll have one of them get repeated or something like that if there's a, if there's a demand for that. Core, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. I want to invite you to be a part of that. Um, so I know some people are a little bit worried still about bigger groups, but these will be smaller groups spread out. So if there's 10 people that want to take one of these classes, they'll be in the fellowship hall. That's 10 people in that room. That's pretty spread out. We'll be all right. Another thing is this. How do we do fellowship? Now, as a Southern Baptist, we do fellowships pretty regularly. We haven't been able to do one since March. But when you don't think about fellowship, we generally think about a potluck. <laughs> and i got to admit, amen, I do, I do miss a potluck right now. I'll be ready for that, Nick. I'll be ready for that, that first potluck that we do. Amen. All right, there you go. And I'm guessing there's some amens online, too. You, you can type amen in on Facebook. Um, but fellowship is so much more than that. It is about sharing a life together. Now, that happens probably not really on a Sunday morning worship service. That, ha- that happens in our smaller group settings. Now, as a kind of a traditional First Baptist Church, we do that sometimes through Sunday school. But even now, Sunday school is a little more difficult because we don't have the space for a bunch of small groups to meet in larger rooms to be spaced out. And that may be a while before that can happen. So we're going to have something called connect groups. Kind of like Sunday school. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're meeting on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. A connect group is a group of people you meet with. Yes, you'll do some teaching, but the emphasis will be on the fellowship, be on praying together, sharing a life with one another, to respond to what's God doing, to pray and to share that life together. That's the, that's the essence of the connect group. And it may look pretty similar to the Sunday school class you were in. It may be somebody, it may be a different group altogether. If you weren't involved in Sunday school, this is a great time to get involved in a connect group. And essentially this, it's a group of it's a, it's a small group of people that meet, but this may not necessarily be on Sunday morning at nine o'clock. It might be Tuesday morning. It might be Saturday night. It might be Tuesday evening. And every group might have to figure out when it is best for them to meet. And since we're just going to be starting some of these up, if you would, by the way, if you would like to be part of a connect group and you don't hear from your Sunday school teacher the next few days, just give us a, in the office a call. We're going to be setting up just a variety of different connect groups that might meet at different times. And the idea is this. Maybe God wants us to do fellowship and do teaching. Maybe God wants us to do these things, but we don't necessarily have to do them at the exact same time we've always been doing it for the last hundred years. Maybe it means that in the world moving forward, we do these things in ways that, Gets us out of, the, out of our comfort zones a little bit. Because the question is not what we've always done. The question is, what does God want to do tomorrow? And what does God want to do Tuesday? Because the last thing we want to do is miss what God does next because we weren't paying attention to what He's already done. We don't want to be the way they were in the first century where they missed Christ. We don't want to miss the next move of God. And I, I mentioned this in our talk about praying for patience a while ago. I think it's entirely possible that as difficult as the year 2020 has been for our world and our culture, it may well be that these difficult days will result in a reaping and a harvest for the kingdom of God like we haven't seen in decades. Who knows what God will do tomorrow? The truth is, even today, Many of our younger folks are hungering for and thirsting for a community, a, a sharing of life, and they're looking for almost any place they can to get it. Honestly, 
in my just personal two cents. So much of what we see on the streets of our country today is because people are looking for anything, they're desperate for anything they can, even if it means violence, if it means they can be a part of something they think is bigger and is something that they can gel with other people about. It's not the only thing going on, but I think it's a part of it. What would happen if we devoted ourselves to fellowship and invited the world who does not know Christ into that? Come and know this one who can provide a community and a fellowship and a sharing of life like nothing else can do. Now that would be, I think, an exciting thing. Devoting yourself to Christ and to his word will never leave you disappointed. Devoting yourself to a man or a woman, devoting yourself to a leader, devoting yourself to a job, devoting yourself to an idea, devoting yourself to a political cause, devoting yourself to any cause for that matter, may in fact leave you disappointed. Devoting yourself to Christ will never leave you disappointed because He will never fail you. Let me invite you this morning to devote yourself to Christ, the teaching of the Apostles' Word, and through fellowship.